0: going through the book of second peter and second peter's only 3 chapters long but it's actually a pretty dense book and so let me just kind of catch you up to speed on what we've talked about so far in second peter and so peter was Jesus kind of right-hand man among those early followers that he was really the leader of the apostles the leader of those early disciples he's always listed first anytime those disciples are are named and so he's on his way out. He's anticipating his execution. He does uh, Peter was executed under Emperor Nero, and so he knows that he's going to be ending here soon, and so he wants to focus on making sure that his account of what that is important, you know, namely the gospel and the implications of the gospel. He wants to make sure that that is written down for the benefit of of uh, of us, for the benefit of the Christians who were in the you know the greater roman empire so that they could have a true account and so he begins his letter talking about the foundation of the gospel this idea that jesus christ died to save sinners and because he he died to save sinners we could be forgiven he was raised from the dead so we could live forever and then he sent us his holy spirit so that we actually would have the power to follow him as king instead of constantly being frustrated and he basically says in chapter 1 that god has given us in the gospel and his spirit everything that we need for life and for godliness and then upon that foundation we supplement that saving work of christ by pursuing virtuous things we pursue now it doesn't that that pursuit doesn't equal our salvation but that pursuit does help us grow in maturity we pursue knowledge of God, we pursue um, excellence, we pursue self-control, we pursue brotherly affection and love, perseverance, these sorts of things. And Peter says that if we do that, then we're going to be fine. We're going to grow. And to go back to something that David said when he was leading worship, the idea is if you're standing with two feet on the foundation of Jesus, Christ, as revealed in the, in the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Bible, and then upon that foundation, you are supplementing it, building with healthy biblical things like love and self-control and knowledge. If you're doing that, then like David said, you're not going to be tricked. You're not going to be deceived that no one's going to call the gotcha card, you know, when all of a sudden you're drinking blood out of a skull. and You're like, how did I get here? All right, it's not going to happen, Okay. No one's gonna trick you to drink blood out of a skull, all right? At least not here. If I show up with a skull, guys, you gotta run. It's not in the Bible, okay? So the point is that Peter wants to make sure they have these things as their foundation. And he points back to the word by saying that all of the miracles God did confirm the veracity of the word of God. And so that we can constantly go back to the word of God, believing the word is true, it's trustworthy, it's going to give us everything that we need for life and godliness as the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives, illuminates it to us, and these sorts of things. And then he warns us, and this is what we started last week, that there are always going to be false teachers who explain the word of God in a way that's twisted the same way that in Old Testament there were false prophets who falsely proclaimed things that God didn't actually say. And I've been going through Jeremiah, and I read uh, yesterday, I read Jeremiah 23, and Jeremiah 23 is just a fantastic summary of what Old Testament false prophets were like. And what you realize is that in the Old Testament prophets, the true prophets, the vast majority of the time was not when they were talking about apocalyptic end times things, though that does happen, you know, with the prophet Daniel, for example. But the majority of the things the prophets were doing was calling people to repentance, Most of the time, the prophets were spent saying, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin. It was the false prophets who were saying, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And so that should give us some pause today as we think about all of the the people who wave the prophet banner in 21st century America, and they say, well, I'm a prophet, I have a prophetic gift. If your prophecies are mostly about whether or not I'm going to get a book deal It's probably not a true biblical gift because most of the prophecies we see in the Old Testament are about speaking into a culture that's inundated with sin to try to call people to repentance. It's not necessarily fortune-telling, right? And so these things are important to realize because we tend to have a cultural framework of these things instead of a biblical framework of these things. Are you guys following me? So... False prophets, false teachers, they've always been a major theme in the Bible. Like I said, they spoke peace and security during the days of the wicked monarchy in the Old Testament when God kept saying, because of your sins, I'm going to exile you. And the false prophets were like, God's not going to do that. They encouraged the worship of false gods while true prophets drew a line in the sand. And then even in the New Testament, we see uh, these false teachers teaching that salvation is by faith plus works with the Judaizers. And then you have other people saying, no, 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 salvation is by works alone. That's also a heresy. Or you have some of these teachers who are saying, it doesn't matter what you do because Jesus paid it all. And you have to realize that it's that third group of false teaching in the God, in the uh, New Testament This false teachers who said, Jesus has forgiven you, therefore do whatever the heck you want. It's that group that Peter is primarily addressing. These are false teachers who gave way to a heresy called antinomianism, which simply means without a law. And it's the idea of licentiousness. If that's a new word to you, think of virtues and vices. If the virtue is self-control, the vice is licentiousness, which really just means having a license to do whatever you want, right? James Bond has a license to kill. These guys are giving out licenses to do whatever you want. And so that's what these false teachers are doing. They're saying, look, because Jesus forgave you, here's a little get out of jail free card. Do whatever you want. Have at it. So let me summarize last week because this is a thick chapter and it's all one cohesive thing. So last week we looked at the first two paragraphs. And in paragraph one, we have this idea that the false teachers, they gave into their sinful urges, and then they twist the teaching of the word of God in order to give themselves permission to do whatever they want. In other words, they're saying, if I can just tweak this, well, then I can I can do what I want. It gives me a license to sin. And when you give yourself a license to sin, it's kind of like Alice in Wonderland going down that bunny trail, that bunny hole, that rabbit hole, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and you see just how far the rabbit hole can go. If you think about it, this is how most heretics start, right? They want to say something new, something unique, something clever, and then it becomes this process of constantly trying to one-up yourself. And so paragraph one, uh, Peter wants us to know that these false teachers are mixing uh, false behavior with false doctrine, And we're going to talk more about what they believed in uh, next week. And in the second paragraph, we have this unasked question of, well, if these guys are wicked, why doesn't God just come and stomp them and just get rid of them? And Peter lets us know that God has always, whether it was in the days of, the fallen angels, or the days of Noah, or Sodom and Gomorrah, and he gives these these Old Testament allusions. And Jesus reinforces this in the parables with the wheat and the tares and the net, the idea being that God has always tolerated the wicked while preserving the righteous, letting them grow up together until the day of judgment. And so as much as we would like to see, well, that guy's really rotten, so maybe God should just smack him, God, in his, and we're going to see this next chapter, in his patience, desires people to repent. He tolerates our sin. He tolerates the wicked while preserving the righteous by faith. And so I left you guys last week hopefully reflecting on your own pursuit of holiness and realizing that the our hope of Jesus' imminent return is, those who eagerly await his return, as it says, um, that, that hope should spur within us a desire to grow and pursue holiness. Also, I wanted you guys to realize that just because God tolerates sin and false teaching now doesn't mean he rubber stamps it. And I think sometimes we can have that false idea um, that you have churches around our nation that teach heresy, that have allowed compromise to the, the umpteenth degree. And then we say, well, you know what? I mean, like God's blessing that church, so obviously he doesn't mind. But we know that's not true, that God preserves the wicked for judgment. And then we left you hopefully contemplating the reality that the best way to recognize false teaching is to know what? What is true. And so the best thing that you can do is be fully immersed in the word of God you know, with God's community, the church, so that you can sharpen one another and you can be like the Bereans who just pour over the scriptures to determine, is this true or is this false? And we don't just fall prey to people who are really attractive, you know, hip speakers with whatever it might be. So now we're going to get into the second half here of chapter 2, beginning in the second half of verse 10. And I'm going to Um, I'm going to read the one paragraph, and then we're going to unpack it. Okay. Beginning with bold and willful. Peter writes, bold and willful, they, the false teachers, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, they're active in your churches. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Insatiable meaning never satisfied. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing. But was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This is like one of those things where you're like, seemed like a good idea at the time to preach through Second Peter. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. If you're reading the New Living Translation, instead of saying glorious ones, it says spiritual beings, which I think is actually a, a more helpful translation. Even though "glorious," the glorious ones is more technical, um, spiritual beings is more helpful for our purposes. You know, we have a very small kind of myopic understanding of the spiritual realm, and we tend to think of it's like as a God, and angels, and Satan, and demons. But there's actually a much larger. Um, can we say congregation of spiritual beings out there besides simply angels as you see even right here Peter draws a distinction between the glorious ones and the angels the idea being that there are spiritual beings in various forms we see that there are cherubim and seraphim we see that there are messenger angels that there's warriors there's there's a host of angelic armies so we don't know all the differences and it wouldn't be beneficial for us to presume that we know all the differences. But the point is, there's a lot of this spiritual world, this spiritual being world. And so what when we think about the spiritual world, right, that's angels and demons. Um, it says in the Old Testament that God is the Elohim of Elohim. That's the God of gods, right? And this idea of Elohim really can be translated as spiritual beings, as a generic term for being something that is divine, kind of like you say, that's the mom of moms, that's my mom among all the moms, This this generic term. So as you think about that, I think there's three temptations that our modern American culture has with the spiritual realm, okay? The first temptation is this, we dismiss it. We logic it away. This is what we would consider to be mainline Protestantism, In other words, if it was supernatural in the Bible, it probably didn't happen, or it has some natural explanation. So God didn't part the Red Sea, there was just like a really strong wind that day and a low tide, and so we reason away all of the supernatural, all the spiritual. That's very common in academia. That's temptation number one. Temptation number two is to obsess over it. You know, you drop your phone in the pool and you're like, man, the devil was after me today. You know, that kind of idea. It's like the devil's not omnipresent. I don't think he's primarily concerned with having you drop your phone in the pool. Um, He's not hiding behind every rock. He's not hiding behind every bush waiting to get you, you know, walking like a crab. Like, that's not what he's doing. He doesn't have little, you know, little pointy horns and a pitchfork. And so we can obsess over it where we make everything to be spiritual warfare. That's another temptation. And then the third temptation is we're flippant towards it. And I think this third temptation is the most tolerated. Now, um, I remember years ago, I was at Creation Fest. You guys know what Creation Fest is? It's kind of like Christian Woodstock. I don't even know if they still do it, but it's like Christian Woodstock and i was there and i was a new believer i mean i had been a believer less than a year but i had already begun reading the bible on my own and as i was there there was this one speaker who was some famous guy i don't know who he was i don't i don't remember but he was one of the main speakers for that night he was the main speaker for that night and he said something along these lines talking about our fight against the world the flesh and the devil and he said, you know, when you come back to the, when you come to the end of your life and you're going to look down, you're going to see how small Satan is and you're going to be like, that's Satan? And you're going to be like, I should I have ignored Satan. And so I tell you, when you feel tempted, you just tell Satan he's stupid. And he was talking like this. And everybody in the crowd is getting all hooped up, right? woo Satan's stupid, all this kind of stuff. And I had just read Second Peter. And I thought to myself, that doesn't really seem in line with anything that Peter is saying. Matter of fact, Peter says the false teachers are flippant towards the spiritual beings. And then you read Jude, which is very much a parallel book to 2 Peter. And look what Jude says in Jude 1, nine. Even the archangel Michael, like chief of angels, Right? Even the archangel Michael, when he's disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn the devil. He did not dare to slander him, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. So you have this flippancy towards the spiritual realm. You can either ignore it, you can obsess of it, Or you can be flippant towards it. And the, the point here is this. The false teachers, like this man at Creation Fest, are wildly biblically ignorant to what they claim to be experts on. And that should really strike a chord in our hearts. Because we live in a culture where people are wildly ignorant to truth, but they claim to be experts at it. I mean, that's literally the mantra of the last three years of our lives in a in hundred different ways. And so this is what the false teachers were doing. They were claiming to be experts, claiming to be teachers, claiming to be of the intelligentsia, but they are actually fools. They know nothing of what they're actually claiming to teach. If they knew even a smidgen, then they would have known these things. Verse 12, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. That's their purpose. Their purpose is to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They are irrational. They think they speak from a place of intelligence, but they're actually ignorant. They are of instinct. They're animals acting out of instinct. They are not acting like intelligent humans who are people who have studied. They're not acting as if they were humans made in the image of God, right? As God's reflection of his character, of his nature. Instead, they are behaving like an animal in heat, only desiring to satisfy the flesh, now, if you have a pet, you realize that pets are trained by repetition, right? Pavlov's dog. Every time we smack the bell, I'm going to give you a treat. And you do that long enough. Every time you smack the bell, the dog goes, Where's the treat? He's saying that they're behaving like that as creatures of instinct instead of as thoughtful, intelligent, wise people who actually wrestle through things. They blaspheme. Well, how do they blaspheme? They have false authority. We talked about that last week. And so they teach lies. I'm going to give you a couple examples from modern day life, and I apologize in advance if I offend you. This is the academia of our day, which says the Bible can't be true because miracles can't happen. This is teaching lies from a false place of authority. These are our mainline seminaries like Duke, and these Ivy League schools that have seminaries, these mainline seminaries and universities of our country that claim to be Christian, but then they say, well, Jesus' resurrection isn't really true. Jesus' resurrection is symbolic. It's spiritual, that it's the idea that we can rise above. It's Christos exemplar. He's our example of how we should live. That's just what Christianity is really all about And so they dumbed down the resurrection to being something that was, I think the one guy I read, he said, it's not that Jesus was resurrected, it's that when Peter finally processed what would happen, he finally felt alive within his own being. And that's the resurrection. And you say, well, nobody really believes that. People believe this all over. There are churches on Cape May Island that will claim this. That the resurrection didn't really happen, that it's simply a spiritual encouragement and manifestation of the things that are valuable in life, like love. They blaspheme by teaching lies with false authority. How about all of the the guise of intelligence that we have now, which says anyone can have a vagina if you want it, anyone can breastfeed if you take enough hormones, men can have babies which I'm pretty sure hasn't happened since the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, okay? And we can this can make us uncomfortable. Maybe we don't want to talk about it, but we can't embrace an emperor's new clothes situation and have an, an, a guise of intelligence. That's not intelligence. That's foolishness. Now, I also want to remind us of this. Paul says, what is my business to judge those outside the church? He says, I have none of it. My job is to judge those within the church, And remember, when we're talking about false teachings, we're talking about false teachers where? Within the church. So I don't expect the world to think as though someone has the Holy Spirit living within them because the world doesn't have the Holy Spirit living within them. But if you are a pastor of a church and you're claiming that you represent the voice of God and then you are promoting these things from the pulpit, that's heresy. And so the truth is that our denominations shouldn't even be debating these things. We should be fleeing churches that debate these things because they departed from the truth a long time ago. Are you guys following me? Okay? And so the point is this. I'm not saying now you need to go out with a bullhorn and yell at everybody, but within our churches, this cannot be tolerated because the church is the household of God. All right. And it is, we are marching towards purity as we honor God. That's what we should be doing. But with these different churches under the God, I know you guys, some of you are so uncomfortable, you're afraid I'm offending people. I understand that. And I'm not trying to offend people who are not followers of Christ. But if you're a follower of Christ, it should be offensive to you that we tolerate sin. That's far more offensive than someone else might get offended by what I'm saying. Thank you, Steve. As long as my father-in-law... Put... <laughs> so nervous. <laughs> okay? Now, we couple this with love. We preach the gospel because we love. We love God and we love people, so we stand up for truth, not in a bulldog kind of way, but in a way that will point people to the cross of Christ. Peter says, under the guise of intelligence, they have become fools. And he says, they're too blind to see it because they are irrational animals. What an insult! What an insult! And he says, they will suffer for it. See, because the point is, eventually you reap what you sow in the short term, in the midterm, and in the long term. And we all know that, because we've all been there continues, they count it as pleasure to revel in the daytime. They count it as pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. This goes back to what we talked about last week. This is the spring break lifestyle. I think I was in high school. I'm 41. I think I was in high school when MTV Spring Break came out. And if you were a teenage boy, you just all of a sudden were very intrigued, right, with MTV Spring Break, because Spring Break was like, you can go here where someone doesn't know who you are, and you can do whatever you want, and like your mom won't find out unless she watches MTV Spring Break, right, and no one's mom watched MTV Spring Break, and then all of a sudden the internet's invented, and now it's like if you do something at MTV Spring Break, then it's out there for everybody to see forever, right, right, it's the same thing with Vegas. It's like the whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Not since the advent of the internet. Now it doesn't stay in Vegas. And so now culturally we're at a crossroads. We either stop our behavior because it's shameful or we do what? We remove the shame. And if we can remove the shame, it's totally normal to do this. It's You should embrace it. You should run with it. You should flourish in it. If we can remove the shame, then we can justify just about anything. Now, I want you to realize how twisted this is from the way culture has always been. This is from 1 Thessalonians, which I think we preached through last year. But you are not in darkness. He's saying you are not... You are born again, is what he's saying. You are not in darkness for the day of Jesus' return to surprise you, for you are children of the light. You're children of the day. In other words, you're born again. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, hope, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And the reason I pulled this verse out, these verses rather from First Thessalonians five, four, and following, is because Paul argues in First Thessalonians five that there's a shame in doing these things, and so people do them when? at night. People do them at night because they don't want to be seen, but not anymore. With these false teachers, it says they revel in broad daylight. In other words, shame is out the window, and you can absolutely see within the however many years Um, always, but maybe more pronounced now because of the advent of the interwebs. Thank you, Al Gore. Because of the internet, now we have no shame. You see, shame is a biblical emotion. It can be a tool in the hand of the enemy to turn into condemnation, but that's not what I'm talking about. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But shame is often a litmus test for sin. The false teachers remove that litmus test By saying you don't need to be shamed. The first thing that Adam and Eve feel when they sin is what? It's shame. They realize they're naked. They feel ashamed. They realize they broke God's law. They hide. Now, I'm not saying that you should all walk in shame. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that by removing shame, we justify whatever we want to do. When we say things like, well, God made me this way. That removes shame. When we justify people, we say, hey, that's just who you are. Some people are angry, belligerent drunks. That just happens to be you. It's just who you are. You can't help it. We remove someone's shame. When we remove someone's shame then they can justify their behavior. If you eliminate shame culturally or personally, you eliminate the restraint of sin and you allow it to reign. And this is what we've done. This is what we've done in our churches. So many heretical churches who justify, you shouldn't be ashamed of your whatever it might be. Anything. I'm not just talking about Sexual sin, I'm talking about anything. You shouldn't be ashamed of your anger. Lots of people get in fights with their landlord, right? No, all right? You should be ashamed of your sin. But Jesus came to remove that shame and expiate it. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. Lust. Pornography, Instagram, covetousness, gluttony, excessive drinking, the endless pursuit of likes, the uh, high value industry of body modification, gender mutilation, only fans as an acceptable alternative to being a nurse, Tinder. Our culture is obsessed with sin. And we have gone the way of destruction, like Paul says in Romans 1, where he says they no longer speak against it, instead they applaud as you do it. They show their approval, constantly inventing new ways to sin. This is the path of destruction. And and Steve has often said to, to me when we discuss Romans 1, in Romans 1, Paul goes through this list of God giving them up to a depraved body, giving them up to a depraved mind. And that phrase, giving them up, giving them up, Steve said it's kind of like you have a wild river and you have a closely, tightly docked boat and then you give a little slack and you give a little slack. That's God giving them up. And now the boat's smacking around and eventually you cut the rope and God says, have thy will be done. And then you reap everything that comes with it these false teachers have an insatiable appetite for sin. Their craving of sin is like a bottomless pit, and it never has enough seeing, it never has enough hearing, it never has enough drinking, it never has enough feeling, it never has enough, it never has enough. You know, there's something that makes me uncomfortable about pastors and worship leaders who make a million dollars a year preaching the word of God, worship leaders who wear $2,000 sneakers and $1,000 tight jeans and we flock to listen to their music. There's something about that that sounds like being trained in greed, like it says here in verse 14. And it makes me squeamish when I think about that. And it makes you wonder, is this the kind of culture that Peter and Paul would say, well done? Or is that the kind of Christian culture that Peter and Paul would border on calling heresy? Makes you think. Because as a churchianity culture, we love that stuff. We buy all their albums. We listen to all their podcasts. We buy all their books and we will willfully turn to blind eye to greed and covetous as long as you produce a good quality fill in the blank. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey, spoke with a human voice. We'll kind of end with this. Apparently we're not going to finish the chapter. Balaam, uh, what happens is the the Ammonites, they realize the Israelites are on the verge of conquest. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land, and they realize they can't defeat this people because the hand of God is with them. Think about this. This is important (laughs) because the enemy's tactics never change. They realize the writing is on the wall for them as the Ammonites, this wicked culture who God gave 400 years to repent because for 400 years he was waiting for their sin to come to completion. That's what he says in the Abrahamic covenant because for 400 plus years they've been sacrificing their children and they had been committing all kinds of heinous atrocities. And God says, I'm going to sidebar. I'm going to put my own kids in slavery in Egypt while I wait for the Ammonites' sin to be fulfilled. And then I'm going to use you as a sword against them because I've had enough. And the Ammonites see that God is going to bring these people into the promised land, into their land where they currently live. And they can't, they can't do anything about it. So they hire Balaam, son of Beor, And they say, go and curse these people. He's a seer. He's a prophet. And he says, I have no power. He says, I can only say what the the Lord reveals to me, even though he's a pagan, right? And so he goes and multiple times. He tries to curse Israel. But every time he tries to curse Israel, only blessing comes out. And the guy who hired him is like, what are you doing? Right? He's like, I can't control it. And so then after this is done, Balaam says, but I got an idea. I'm going to treat—I can't curse them, but what I can do is I can trick them into sin. And what is, you have to read between the lines because the Hebrew is very creative in its wording. I think it says that, you know, and Balaam does this, and it says the people rose up to play. okay. Use your imagination. The people went to spring break, okay? And so the people, because of Balaam's leading, he's like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to find the most attractive people in the Ammonites, and we're going to send them into the Israelite camp. And then they give way to all kinds of sexual pleasure. And this is how God, or this is how, how the Ammonites wind up twisting through Balaam, twisting the Israelites and bringing them into sin. And God will have none of it. And so then Balaam, he's, he's, he's on his donkey and he's going his way and he's happy because he's got his pockets full of cash and his donkey turns around and rebukes him. His donkey. And Balaam's like, come again? His donkey rebukes him. Now, this is what you need to get from this story. I so want to say it, but I'm not going to say it. But Balaam acts more like a, than his donkey does. The donkey rebukes the master because Balaam is acting like an irrational animal more than the donkey who rebukes Balaam for walking in madness. This is the point. False teachers become and behave like irrational animals, but an irrational donkey displays more wisdom than the false teacher and the false prophet. And there's only one word to describe this kind of activity. It's madness. And the church of God should flee from it. And so how would you summarize this whole section, this whole paragraph? False teachers think they are intelligent. But in actuality, they behave and think like animals. And those who follow them become like them. Run away from people who insist on being the smartest person in the room. False teachers think that they are intelligent, but they throw out logic and wisdom and reason and common sense, common sense, under the guise of scholarship. Run, flee, run away. Know your Bible, know the truth, and pray for these people. Pray for repentance. Pray for forgiveness, because but by the grace of God, had our eyes not been unveiled by his Holy Spirit, we could have wound up in the same place. And so let us not get on our high horse and say, well, thank goodness I'm not like that. We're like, not like that because God opened up our eyes. And so we pray that God would open up their eyes and bring many people to repentance. But the church of God must be pure. And then we preach forgiveness to a world that is desperate for it. Okay? Let me pray, and then we're going to lead into a time of communion. Father God, I pray that any words that were from your spirit would remain, and any words that were from my own flesh would disappear. I pray that the people in this room would be like the Bereans who were constantly pouring over the scripture to make sure the things that Paul shared were accurate, God, just because I say it, I don't want them to think that they um, cannot question or ask questions or research your word on your own. But I pray that all of our study would be rooted in what your word says and not what people say. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would lead us into your word. Your word is truth. Let your Holy Spirit illuminate truth to us and guide us that we don't fall prey. And I pray, Lord, for this mad world. This mad world needs Jesus. It needs forgiveness. It needs conviction of sin. It needs a little bit of a dose of shame so that people know that they need the Lord. And so, Father God, I pray that your gospel would go out in power, God, because people need to know that they are destined for destruction if they do not repent and turn to you. Thank you that you died so we could be forgiven of our own idiocy. Thank you that you were raised from the dead so that we could live forever. And I thank you, the God, that you sent us your Holy Spirit so we actually could walk in your truth. Your word is truth. Your way is truth. In your name, amen.